daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Xi Jinping stresses the development of new productive forces and promotion of high-quality development. China urges for the regular and orderly operation of the UN's Palestinian refugee agency, UNRWA. China opposes U.S. government officials' baseless accusation of China attacking U.S. public infrastructure. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Xi Jinping, General Secretary of the Communist Party of China Central Committee, has urged efforts to accelerate the development of new productive forces and firmly promote high-quality development. He made the remarks on Wednesday at a meeting of the Political Bureau of the CPC Central Committee. He explained that new productive forces mean advanced productivity that is freed from traditional economic growth mode and productivity development paths, features high-tech, high-efficiency, and high-quality, and comes in line with a new development philosophy. He also stressed that high-quality development is an unyielding principle in the new era. Now, for more on this, I earlier had a conversation with Dr. Yao Shujie, Chang Kang Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Xi Jinping said, "With innovation playing the leading role, new productive forces mean advanced productivity that is freed from traditional economic growth mode and productivity development paths, features high-tech, high efficiency, and high quality." Uh, now, Professor, help us understand more about this concept of new productive forces. I mean, what does it mean? What can be referred to as these forces in our economic activity? Well, you can see from the media,、um, particularly from the the speeches by President Xi Jinping, he has stressed the importance of new productive、uh, new productive forces. He also explained what it means. Uh, basically, uh, the new productive forces is in contrast to the traditional、uh, productive forces. The traditional productive forces rely heavily on、uh, material input, capital input, and labor input. So,、uh, production and output have to be、uh, supported by intensive、uh, amount of these kinds of traditional input, labor and capital in particular. Nowadays,、uh, particularly in the new development era, China have entered a different stage.、Uh, the Chinese per capita GDP is approaching the high income、uh, country level,、mm-hmm. but China have a large population with a vast territory and also comp- very comprehensive、uh, domestic、uh, industry and and supply chain. Much of the supply chain and the domestic industry. Have to depend on new technology to increase production efficiency, particularly labor efficiency and capital efficiency. And to do so, I think innovation is playing a very important role.、Mm. And by you know by in putting all these、uh, background together,、uh, President Xi Jinping used the concept of new productive force, which means that、uh, the production. A process, particularly in industry,、mm. would be driven by high technology, high efficiency, and also、uh, high outcome. It, it means that、uh, per capita income, per capita output, or per unit of、uh, capital or material input, going to produce more value added. And this is the very basic explanation.、Mm. But in detail. In detail, I think the new productive forces actually refer to labor, refer to the the, the production、uh, tools, and also the outcome. That means the commodity that we produce.、Mm. In terms of labor, it means our new labor force also face complica-、uh, complicated、uh, challenges because the population is aging,、mm. but people are getting more educated. So the so-called population dividend is gradually、uh, replaced by the so-called talent dividend. So we have maybe the population will be stable, the labor force will be stable. 
in the future, it's fairly difficult to increase labor uh, as a direct uh, means of improving production. So we have to improve the labor quality so that the labor force will become more productive. You employ the same people, but we produce more output. So this is the, the demand for uh, talents and also the so-called education uh, dimension. The other things, the, the, the production tools, for example, in the factories, mm. we employ more and more robotic automation uh, production means. So the traditional uh, you know, machines will be replaced by digital and also uh, high uh, artificial intelligence uh, you know, technology. So it's like the same piece of machine, uh, the same size, they will be more productive. For example, like the new vehicle energy uh, in our factories, uh, China can produce one new vehicle within a, a minute. Mm. Uh, you know, the fastest growth uh, production is 40 seconds for per unit of uh, vehicle cars. So this is the, 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 the direct example uh, for the so-called production means. And now the output in terms of the commodity that we consume, for example, uh, traditionally we drive a car, we basically uh, go from one place to another. And today, if we drive a car, you have many other features. Mm -hmm. For example, the driver will find, find it more convenient because of the guided driving technology. Uh, and for the passengers, they can actually enjoy the music or even the video or television on the car. So this kind of uh, consumption uh, is very different. And uh, the output is going to entertain the consumer in different aspects. There are many other examples. Mm -hmm. So the new uh, productive forces basically can be reflected by these three elements. Professor, so the idea was first brought about by Xi Jinping during his September trip last year to Heilongjiang province in northeast China. He continuously talked about it um, subsequently on various occasions. Professor, can you help us understand more about the background of this? I mean, what's special about the timing of this new idea? Well, as I mentioned, um, you know, after the COVID-19 China have a lots of national strategy, for example, like the double circulation uh, development pattern, and also the you know the the so-called socialist modernization, mm. and also the the green development and so on so forth. Now, if you put all these concepts together, uh, and how to use a simple concept to reflect what we want to achieve, is using the so-called new productive force. Because it reflects everything, reflects not only the uh, the relationship between people and the society, it also reflects the, the technology and also the production factories. Now, this is the background. Another background is because of the international uh, condition have changed. Mm -hmm. As China become to a, a super economy power, more and more challenges are facing China today. Uh, one is the, the, the technology innovation, because China's Chinese product, it used to be the so-called uh, the wall factories, mm. but it's made in China, now it's, it should be uh, innovative in China. So the, the same product, that will be more and more rely on domestic technology. And to rely more and more on domestic technology, the domestic industry, and the domestic production chain mm. have to have new technology which drive these kinds of uh, a, you know, production process. And this is uh, a, another uh, background. The third background is because China have 1.4 billion people. Mm -hmm. In order for the Chinese people to become, uh, the, the, the country to become a rich developing countries, we have to focus on technological progress because other input, such as uh, labor, uh, land, and, and raw materials, they are very limited. And you cannot just use more land, more materials, and more labor to increase the total output. But only increase the total output can per capita income increased. So in order to increase the per capita income, uh, uh, I mean, per capita GDP, 
the only, the most important and continuous driving force is technology. Mm. So innovation and technology has become a dominant and increasingly dominant factors of the new era of the Chinese production process. Mm. Professor, you already uh, kind of talked about uh, the international environment for China at the moment, but let's elaborate more on that. I mean, how do you see the current external environment for China to develop new productive forces? I mean, what might be some of the challenges faced by the country? The biggest challenge is also the so-called protectionism Mm. and also the technological sabotage by some of the, the, the Western uh, industrial economy led by the United States. Mm. I think uh, on their side, I feel it could be understandable because they want to maintain the dominant and monopoly uh, position uh, for the industry and also international trade, uh, the in, in even the financial sector as well. But their population put together, uh, the United States and also Western Europe, they are only half of the Chinese population. That means that if the Chinese people are becoming as rich as the United, as the Americans and also the Europeans, then the geographical, uh, political, uh, you know, pattern in the world will change to the, uh, the you know, to the uh, position that China will become more dominant even than the United States or Western Europe. So United States and Western Europe, in order to maintain or prolong their dominant position in the world, one possible approach is to slow down China's uh, technological progress and economic development. However, this is only uh, their their side. On the Chinese side, China has to break the bottleneck of technology by putting more resources into innovation. So some of the technology have to be created uh, within the country rather than depend on, uh, for example, the United States or Western Europe. Mm -hmm. And this is how the current situation China is in. On the one hand, you have some sort of, uh, you know, technological uh, embargo or some sort of technological uh, difficulty or transfer and so on and so forth. But China... Uh, in order to overcome this bottleneck, it helps to do more and more in the innovation sector. Dr. Yao Shujie, Changkang Professor of Economics at Chongqing University, talking about new productive forces. Coming up, China urges regularly and orderly operation of UN's Palestinian Refugee Agency. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Chinese nationals have been warned against entering the United States via an airport in Washington as dozens of Chinese students with proper documents have faced groundless accusations, harassment, and in some cases, even forcible deportation upon arrival. What's behind the unfair treatment? How will it affect the already dampened bilateral ties? How helpful is it at a time when the two countries are struggling to move closer? Find out the answers on this week's Chat Lounge, anywhere you get your podcasts, and on CGTN Radio. Welcome back to World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China has urged the regular and orderly operation of the UN's Palestinian refugee agency, UNRWA. On Thursday, China's foreign ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin called for main donors of the agency to reconsider their decision to suspend funding for the agency and put lives of the Gaza people as a top priority. Countries including the United States, UK, Canada and few others earlier announced their decisions after Israel had put forward intelligence dossier accusing the agency's employees of being involved in the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. Wang Wenbin said China supports independent, impartial and objective investigation by the United Nations on the issue. Now, for more, we're joined on the line by Dr. Wang Jin. He is Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thank you, Dr. Wang, for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Now, Dr. Wang Jin, help us understand the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East. 
Unra first. I mean, what kind of agency is it, and what's its mission? How big is it? Uh, okay, now your nation believe in the work agency uh, for Palestinian refugees. In short, we always say they are the uh, uh, UNRWA. Uh, this is a very important uh, agency that under the direction and uh, uh, under the, the, the and under the assistance of the United Nations. Uh, for helping the Palestinian refugees, because actually uh, we know the biggest, uh, the first biggest wave of refugees in, uh, in the international arena after the Second World War was a refugee wave from the Palestinian uh, Palestinian territory uh, after the first uh, uh, Israel and Arab War. Mm. Uh, so, uh, from the perspective of Palestinian and Arab people, the first uh, Israel-Arab War was, or the first uh, Middle East War was called the Nakba, is the disaster. Uh, so, a lot of uh, hundreds of thousands of the Palestinians, they were forced to leave their home uh, to uh, go to other parts of the region. Uh, for example, some of them uh, went to uh, from Israeli today, the Israeli territory, but then it was the the the, the Arab area uh, mm. area. So they have to force to leave the Arab area to today's West Bank and uh, Gaza Street, and and many others. They have to flee to uh, the neighboring countries such as Syria, such as Lebanon, such as Jordan, uh, including also including Egypt and uh, Iraq and uh, other uh, Middle Eastern countries. Some of them go to the Gulf Arab states. So in order to take good care of these refugees, the international uh, society. Uh, together with the United Nations, they created such uh, UNRWA to mm. try to take care of these uh, refugees. And during the past decades, actually, UNRWA did a lot of jobs and has already contributed a lot uh, to assist the different uh, the, the Palestinian refugees in different countries, and they very successfully fulfilled their missions. So that is why we say that their historic uh, merits and the historic contribution should be recognized, and it is today it is still very uh, even the the biggest and the most important agency and uh, missionary uh, the, uh, agency for the, the assistance and the humanitarian assistance to the Palestinian refugees all across the world. Mm. Well, the accusation that 12 employees at UNRWA participated in the October 7th attack uh, actually came from intelligence dossier provided by Israel. Dr. Wang Ji, what are the evidences so far that have been presented? I think that the, the, when they say, when, when some of the news uh, released that say that uh, uh, 12 employees or maybe some, maybe more numbers, uh, different perspective or different uh, government has different ideas. Uh, they say that UNRWA has participated in uh, some of the stuff uh, from UNRWA has participated in the Hamas attack against the Israel targets. Uh, we have to know that uh, this um, this reflects some kind of uh, the claim mm -hmm. uh, from Israeli perspective, and also some uh, from the internet uh, from the United States. Their own opinion that UNRWA has. Uh, needs to be reformed or needs to be reorganized mm -hmm. because during the past uh, two decades, especially to particularly the two decades, Israel and the United States uh, more and more increasingly criticized uh, and defined uh, Anwar as the, the production uh, uh, agency for the Palestinian people mm -hmm. and the very, very harbor for the criticisms of Israel's own security and the national interest. So against this backdrop, that Israel always claimed that some staff of the UNRWA they have the close connections with Hamas, and maybe their family members have the uh, other members of the Hamas, and so that is why they provided, according to the Israeli definition and description, they provided some information about the Israeli uh, national defense forces uh, 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 to uh, to the Hamas. So that is why, uh, although there were some. Uh, some claims from Israel that uh, uh, the more more uh, more uh, agencies, uh, more staff from the agencies of UNRWA mm. uh, played uh, in in this round of the contact uh, of conflict, but we have to know that the proof are not so solid. So mm. only mm. twelve staff has been defined, and uh, UNRWA that's reflected a very very uh, conflicting ideas of how the UNRWA should be organized and how the future UNRWA's role should be played. Mm. So this is a very, very deeply rooted problem between the two sides. Mm. Dr. Wang Jin, uh, Wang Wenbin, China's foreign ministry spokesperson, said 
China supports independent, impartial, and objective investigation by the United Nations on this issue. In your understanding, who should be in charge of the investigation? How should be the investigation be conducted? I think every uh, the investigation team, all the investigation committee is very highly needed because actually now a lot of uh, uh, different ideas and criticism from different sides uh, come comes together to the Anwar, uh Try to blame everything. Uh, try to blame everything uh, on its side. So this is a very, very negative direction or negative uh, motivation. Uh, maybe that would harm the trust between Israel and the Palestinians and uh, shock the image of, of the United Nations in the international society. So I think given that ANWR is a very important agency from the United Nations, especially the United Nations Security Council should organize a very a particular committee mm-hmm. uh, uh, included and participated uh, by uh, not only the the the, the 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 United Nations Security Council permanent members, but mm-hmm. also should invite other states, especially I think from the, some of them should come from the Middle Eastern states to join this team to try to find out what happened, what actually happened, and what if there was something should be needed to be reformed and need to be needed more to be done. What should be done? So rather than just the claims and criticize them from by the Western countries and by the Israel, I don't think this will work mm. and to help pacify the tension right now. Indeed. Now, Dr. Wang Jin, uh, tw- uh, quite a few countries, uh, including United States, United Kingdom, Germany, have suspended their funding for ARA. Although they said this is temporary, this has created a lot of worries among UN agencies. China's ambassador to the United Nations, Zhang Jun, uh, said individual cases should not dilute attention from the situation in Gaza and the efforts for a ceasefire and the alleviation of humanitarian disaster. Dr. Wang Jing, how should we interpret the remarks by Zhang Jun? Uh, I think first of all that the suspension of funding uh, for the Anwar uh, is not a correct choice because uh, when 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 some of the Western countries they suspended the the, the funds for the Anwar, actually they they cut their subsidies and cut their assistance to the Palestinian people. Palestinian people are also the suffer also suffering from this round of the conflict. So actually, that more should be done to help the local Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip rather than just to simply cut the, 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 the fund to the uh, onward. This is not the very correct choice. And on the other hand, uh, as Jun, uh, uh, Ambassador Zhang Jun suggests, that uh, the, the ceasefire in the Gaza Strip is a very deeply rooted problem that for the Middle Eastern uh, unrest and Middle Eastern uncertainties right now. So the very thing that needed highly, very highly needed to be done is to find solutions to help uh, Israel and the Palestinians to sit down and to mediate uh, the very ceasefire with as as early as possible to pacify the tension and also to help the local Palestinian people through the very humanitarian assistance channel there. Mm. I remember some officials uh, from the United Nations said uh, the Palestinian people should not be uh, the ones who are being punished. Um, now, Dr. Wang Jin, briefly, how do you comment on those remarks? I think that is correct because the Palestinian mm-hmm. people should not become the price for the international uh, or the, the, the very uh, competition or the very discussion and the rivalries between uh, between different ideas over the Iran over the the the, the 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 original uh, original hot pot, hot pot political ideas. So that is why I think when we are talk about how to punish the Anwar, how to reorganize the Anwar, okay, that is okay, but we should not cut the cut mm-hmm. the subsidies and we, for the Palestinian people, and we should not fa- forget that the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip they are still suffering from the Indeed. war, and mm-hmm. finally, when we should uh, do our best to find solutions to help Thank the you. local people there. Mm. Thank you. That was Dr. Wang Jin, associate professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Coming up, China opposes U.S. government officials' baseless accusation of China attacking U.S. infrastructure. This is World Today. For more discussions, follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Quick. We'll be right back. Welcome. I'm Elaf Elard. 
economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. We're responding to U.S. officials who said Chinese hackers targeted American critical infrastructure. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin said on Thursday that China firmly opposes and cracks down on all forms of cyber attacks in accordance with the law. He noted that the U.S. jumped to conclusion in the absence of valid evidence and made groundless accusations and smears against China. Wang Wenbin also urges the U.S. to stop cyber theft and attacks around the world and to stop using cybersecurity to smear other countries. For more on this issue, my colleague Xu Yawen earlier had a conversation with Shen Dingli, professor in the Institute of International Studies, Fudan University. Professor Shen, so what's your take on the alleged China-backed hackers attacking U.S. critical infrastructure?、Uh, this is not new. The U.S. has charged China on such a sort of、uh, cyber-based attack、uh, multiple times.、Uh, this is the latest time the U.S.、Uh, has accused China. Do they have any solid evidence to support their accusation?、Uh, this is also something I would like to see. But、uh, per those open available source, I have not seen any clear, unclad evidence the U.S. government has presented this time, as were the previous cases. Analysts say this is another wave of attack on China in the fields of technology. Professor Shen, what's your take on that, and what's the agenda behind U.S. accusation? China and U.S. have some legal agreements. President Xi Jinping visited the U.S. in 2015 and to cut a deal with the then U.S. President Barack Obama that China and U.S. the two government would create create an intergovernment mechanism. Once a certain country charged another country, it should present evidence, and the country charged should cooperate with the country that raised such concern. And to conduct internal investigation to honor their mutual agreement. Well, you just mentioned that China and the U.S. signed an anti-hacking agreement back in 2015. Both countries pledged not to launch cyber attacks against commercial entities. So, could you elaborate more on how effective has the agreement been in curbing cyber threats between the two nations? Actually, the 2015 agreement was not the first. China-U.S. government have discussed this,、uh, struggling、uh, with this, but they cut the deal again. But unfortunately, during the Donald Trump time, his government cut off almost all China-U.S.、Uh, channel to keep the two country talking, working, collaborating. The two countries used to have 200 intergovernment、uh, mechanisms to cooperate, but the end only two、uh, remain. So 99% of China-U.S. cooperation、uh, was suspended or stopped. But、uh, President Joe Biden also have not able to resume China-U.S. cooperation, and until last year, November 15. President Xi Jinping and President Biden、uh, reached a San Francisco vision to promise that the two countries would promote a multiple channel of cooperation on commerce, on business, on trade, on technology, on anti-drug, on military cooperation. But still, the cooperation on stopping cyber attack. Has not been on the agenda, so I presume even though China and U.S.、Uh, have cut the agreement in 2015, such agreement has not been well implemented yet.、Uh, you also mentioned that this is now the first time that the U.S. has accused China of cyber attacks. 
Last year, America made similar accusations, and in response to that,、uh, the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson said that the U.S. was spreading false information, and the Chinese government departments are subject to massive cyber attacks almost every day, with most of them originated from the U.S. In the meantime, there is evidence showing that the U.S. National Security Agency has infiltrated the servers of Huawei since 2009. So, considering the past record of the U.S., how do you assess America's behavior in the world of cyberspace? Well, U.S. has a certain argument. America has a mission to infiltrate other countries' uh, cyber uh, gateway, but for security. For strategic purpose, so America has the morality、uh, not to attack other countries' critical infrastructure like water, like electricity, like transportation. This is a really hypocritic argument. So America has the right to attack other countries' military cyber facility, and other country cannot launch counterattack on America. They can attack Americans' military facility, but not a water facility. But what if other country does not have as advanced technology as the U.S. military? They have some low technology. So why have they have to bear the U.S. attack on their critical security infrastructure? And they cannot launch a counterattack on the U.S. civilian side. That's the argument. I'm not saying. China have the right to attack Americans' civilian facility. I even would say China should not attack Americans' military、uh, cyber facility. But America at the same time should not only not attack China's civilian facility. If this has been the case, it should also not attack, not to attack China's political and security and strategic cyber infrastructure. And given the U.S. commitment to Taiwan, and given China's view that Taiwan is an integral part of China, why the U.S. can hurt China's security interest, sovereign interest? So this is the argument. I think、uh, Obama, Xi Jinping's paper cut in 2015, has laid a solid foundation for our current government and the current U.S. government. To implement the San Francisco vision has laid another solid background that has promoted the U.S.-China military and anti-drug and finance and trade talk at this time smoothly. The two countries should not only argue against with each other on the cyber attack; they should really honor the 2015 agreement. One country raising the concern. Please present evidence. The country charged should work together with other country for investigation, clarification, and punishing those cyber attackers. That would help build China-U.S. trust at this crucial time. Do you still see the opportunities and the chance for China and the U.S. to cooperate in protecting cyberspace? Oh, they should. I think. They should to cooperate to stop mutual cyber attack accusation, and foremost, they should cooperate not to attack in the first place. The U.S. should be genuine not only not to attack other countries' civilian facility, but also not to attack、uh, other countries'、uh, security cyber facility, not to attack China's, Russia's, but also not to attack Germany's, Japan's. As to what I know, U.S.、Uh, Prism program attacks all country, including its allies' security cyber assets, which has made Germany, Mexico, and、uh, Japan very angry. Shen Dingli, professor in the Institute of International Studies, Fudan University. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. 
As one of CGTN Radio's most popular programs, World Today provides listeners with a strong mix of international news and business. It delivers in-depth analysis of current affairs and one-on-one interviews. We need the stories behind the news, not just what's happening, but why. Welcome back. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. The U.S. Federal Reserve has left interest rates unchanged at a 22-year high of 5.25% to 5.5%, while avoiding the signal of an imminent rate cut going forward. This latest policy meeting on Wednesday, also the first in 2024, marked the fourth straight meeting for the central bank to hold policy rate steady. At a press conference, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that inflation eased from its highs without a significant increase in unemployment, and that was very good news. But he also noted that inflation remained above the Fed's long-run goal of two percent. In a statement, the Federal Open Market Committee, the Fed's policy-setting body, said that in considering future adjustments, the committee would carefully assess incoming data, the evolving outlook, and the balance of risks. Now, for more, we're joined by Dr. Zhang Gong. He is professor with University of International Business and Economics. Thank you, Professor Gong, for talking to us again. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Professor,、uh, explaining the decision, the Fed Open Market Committee、uh, said in a statement,、uh, "quote unquote," the committee does not expect it will be appropriate to reduce the target range until it has gained greater confidence that inflation is moving sustainably toward two percent. Professor, what does this mean? Does this mean? I mean, does it mean Fed believes the current inflation level of above three percent is okay? Um, I think、uh, what's driven, what's driving this decision is、mm. that、uh, the incoming inflation data is better than the Fed expected.、Um, the、um, what's called the、uh, the core inflation rate,、uh, which excludes food and energy prices,、uh, was just up 2.9 percent last month,、um, and、um, this is better than you know the 3.2 percent core inflation rate that the Fed officials had projected in December. Um, I think the Fed's target is two percent,、mm-hmm. so、um, so it thinks that、um, you know this this、um, it's it's moving towards that direction,、uh, and、um, and there's no、uh, need for taking any action at this point. Professor, in your reading, I mean, how's the market been reacting to this?、Um, I think the market is probably expecting the Fed to、uh, decrease rates、uh, sooner. Mm-hmm. But it sounds to me that、um, it looks, it looks to me that the,、um, the Fed is not going to、uh, move the rate any time further.、Uh, certainly, it's not going to increase rate, and so it explicitly says so. But、um, in terms of uh,、um, uh, dropping rates, I don't think it's going to happen any time soon,、uh, because after all, you know, the, the U.S. economy is actually performing pretty good. I mean, the unemployment rate is、uh, is, is quite low,、mm-hmm. um, and Uh, last year's GDP growth is very decent, and inflation it looks like it's under control, and there's no reason to stimulate the economy. So I think、uh, it's going to maintain the same rates,、uh, you know, 5.25 to 5.5 percent、uh, for some time. My projection is that it's probably not going to do anything、uh, by the end of、uh, the middle of the year.、Mm. Well,、um, Professor, in January we have seen a slew of layoff announcements in America, especially、um, you know in the more white collar industries, for example, tech and media. But the open market said in the statement,、uh, the committee judges that the risks to achieving its employment and inflation goals are moving into better balance. What 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 do they mean by this better balance? I mean, how should we understand that?、Uh, is the statement in contradiction with reality? Well,、um, the highest inflation rate that we、uh, that the United States has seen、uh, was back to was was back in like about a year ago, eight、mm. to nine percent. I remember. Right.、Mm. Um, it, the target, of course, is two percent. So、uh, by raising interest rates, I think it's eleven times so far.、Mm. The you know the inflation rate is steadily coming down towards that two percent goal. So the question really is.、Um, You know how much of a、uh, you know actions have to be taken because、uh, you know raising rates um, uh, certainly mm. Um, mm. 
you know, takes a toll on the economy. Uh, but the Fed is, you know, seeing the trend towards that uh, 2% goal without taking any action at all. So I think that's the reason why it doesn't see an, uh, see in any uh, necessity uh, to take actions at all. Now, the, 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 the layoffs uh, you're talking mm-hmm. about, um, mm-hmm. I, I think, that, you know, there are small incidents in the grand scheme of things. I mean, there's only two companies. I think there's some pressure um, in the tech sector right now um, as a result of the technological change, actually, right? So uh, this has nothing to do with, um, you know, the economy is, is not doing well. So I think, and also I think the scale of that is is, is still very small compared to uh, you know, it's definitely less than four percent unemployment rate in the United States right now. So um, it's not going to; uh, these things are not going to sway the minds of the um, the Fed officials. Mm. Professor, um, economy is uh, a top issue in the uh, the uh, upcoming U.S. Uh, general election. I mean. How's uh, the U.S. monetary policy in general faring into the election, um, you know, debate right now? Um, well, I think um, if you look at both the fiscal and the monetary policies mm. taken by the Biden administration, I think they're extremely successful, actually. You know, the legislative efforts um, leads to the successful passage of these two bills, which um, leads to... Um, you know, the onshoring movements, many more investments are now poured into the manufacturing sectors in the United States, creating a lot of jobs, I think particularly in the semiconductor industry. If you look at the monetary policy side, I think the Fed has been, you know, very successful uh, in taming inflation, in bringing inflation down to something less than 3% right now. Um, but but I think the issue with the Biden administration is that mm. the average folks uh, don't feel it. And, and I think the Biden administration does a poor job of communicating these achievements to the American people. Um, so the, <laughs> the the voters don't necessarily attribute the status of the economy to the Biden administration's policies. I think that that's his problem. Um, but, um, but but I think at this point, you know, there's still many months away from the November election. Uh, still a lot of time, um, and we'll see what's going to happen. I think. Even amidst the, um, you know, quite a few polls showing Trump leading, mm. um, I think Joe Biden still has a path to um, mm. uh, stay in the White House. Um, you know, as long as he wins these northern swing states, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and, and Wisconsin, mm. um, I think there's still a path left uh, for him to win. But we have to see whether um, you know, that's going to happen. But definitely, mm. the economy is one of the key. Campaign issues. Right. Uh, this, mm. yeah. Thank you. Uh, we'll see. You know how uh, the monetary policy plays into the election moving forward. Thank you. That was Dr. Zhang Gong, professor with University of International Business and Economics. This is World Today. Be right back. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the Independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up-to-date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg has apologized to families who said their children were harmed by his social media platform. The apology came as Zuckerberg answered questions at a Senate hearing on the impact of social media on children. Meta is a parent company of Facebook and Instagram. CEOs from TikTok, X, and Snap and Discord were also questioned during the hearing over alleged harms to young users on their platforms. For more, my colleague Zhao Ying spoke with Mario Cavallo, founder and CEO of M Communications Group, also senior fellow, Center for China and Globalization. Could you provide an overview of the specific accusations that prompted this apology by Mark Zuckerberg and the concerns raised by lawmakers regarding Meta's role in contributing to online harms, especially related to child safety? You know that this particular situation that came up is based on a uh, more recent New Mexico Attorney General lawsuit filing that followed 
an undercover online investigation. Now, these issues have come up before, but in this particular case, for example, Attorney General Raul Torres of New Mexico, he said in a statement on Wednesday, and I'll quote it, our investigation into Meta's social media platform demonstrates that they are not safe spaces for children, but rather prime locations for predators to trade child pornography and solicit minors for sex. So uh, it's a very, very serious uh, situation, and it's an update to, uh, to previous lawsuits that have already been filed previously um, for quite an egregious violations on, on Facebook's part to just really not fulfill its, its responsibilities as a platform for, for, for children and teenagers. Yeah, those are very serious accusations. And Senator Lindsey Graham also accused Mark Zuckerberg of having blood on his hands and having products that's killing people. I mean, how, how do you look at these accusations and to what extent do you think social media platforms should be responsible for these serious harms mentioned in the hearing? Unfortunately, this problem falls on social media platforms, which have become such a ubiquitous and central part of people's daily lives uh, for you know, families all across not only the United States, but all across the world, including here in China. But my comment on this, though, splits the difference in, in terms of the responsibility between the social media platforms and the lawmakers the politicians in Washington, who themselves are to blame for creating the set of laws in the first place, which set up social media platforms to be able to, I want to say, get away with these kinds of problems without liability. Um, you know, they fall under these guidelines of protected media, no matter what they do. And this was outrageous from the very beginning when social media companies began changing the, the social landscape, right? You know, Tucker Carlson, a few months back, did a show, and normally he criticizes China, but he made the comment about how in China, social media like TikTok um, is far more wholesome and better for consumption for families than it is in the United States. Well, why is that? It's because of the laws. It's because of the governance of the society. And that doesn't fall just on the social media platforms. That falls on the, the, the political leaders. And that's really, and it's just one indicator of the deterioration of the society in America and why the deterioration is happening. The government is responsible. Yeah, since you mentioned government responsibility, actually we know the hearing comes as uh, the Congress considers the proposed Kids Online Safety Act, which requires online platforms to protect children from harms. Uh, but it's said that the bill has faced pushback from uh, technology companies. Why is that? Well, we're back to it again. Why do we need to propose a Kids Online Safety Act today in 2024? Why wasn't it already there, as I just said, from the very beginning? And the answer, of course, is what we're back to from the very beginning, which is we're back to profits. And these profits trickle down as lobbying money into the halls of Washington. Um, it's really been a corruption of open free markets, of freedom, of profit-making, of vulture capitalism, all instead of government doing its job, which is to take care of the society on behalf of the people who voted them into office in the, in the, in the case of the United States. Yeah, but isn't it, I mean, better late than never? And if, if there's such an act now, what do you make of the potential impact of this um, legislation in addressing child safety concerns on these online platforms? Well, you're absolutely right that better late than never is, is, is the situation that we're currently looking at. The bill, as you mentioned, has faced pushback from technology companies. What's going on? What's that all about? You know, I mean, when are the social media companies 
going to stand up with the government together and say, our responsibility is to our shareholders, our responsibility as a company in business is obviously we're interested in making a profit, but our responsibility is also to the society, to the people. Look at what's going on to these with these families with young children. So what what is the implications of of the act? Well, they'll clean it up and they'll have to clean it up like they should have done in the first place. They they do claim to be making a whole an effort now they're saying, you know, Mark Zuckerberg mentioned in the testimony that you know, we, we now have dozen, two dozen, over two dozen tools that help people to manage these problems. Um, so I'm not going to say they're doing nothing, but they're obviously not doing enough. And the impact, as you asked me, on on this new legislation would be that they would have to be responsible and that this would have to cut into their profits. Well, that's just too bad. Mark Mark Zuckerberg is a billionaire. He became a billionaire on this exploitation. And that's what Lindsey Graham pointed out when he said, you know, you've got blood on your hands. And and this is not acceptable. But again, I'm I'm back to not forgetting to blame the politicians for the laws in the first place. Okay. And and the lawsuit against Meta alleges that Facebook and Instagram intentionally created psychologically manipulative features to keep kids addicted. How do you look at this? And do you think um, these uh, tech companies should be more transparent in terms of their algorithm, perhaps? You know, that's a very interesting question when we talk about how addictive social media platforms are. Because from what I can tell, they all are. All of these platforms have those addictive features built in, you know, being able to just flick up with your thumb to new videos. And I don't have a great answer on it. Uh, It's distracting to children. And you believe maybe that's uh, the point when uh, the government should step in. There's no doubt in my mind the government should step in. I, I, I have become a firm believer after the last 24 years of my life living here in China and seeing how the society is run and governed by the leaders in Beijing compared to how society is run and governed by the leaders in uh, Washington, in the United States, in the West. I've been an observer of the differences between the two societies. They both have pluses and minuses. But overall, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that if you look at the state of a society, what's going well and what's not going well, I have come to the conclusion that without a doubt, the vast majority of the reason for whatever is happening in a society is one is is the responsibility of the government who is governing that society. Maria Cavallo, senior fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, find us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.